C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The passage that we have before us today is an interesting one that reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. I titled the message that way because it just seems to be so obvious. Uh, And anything else would be an effort on my part to find some sort of derivative. And I didn't want to do that. I thought we're just going to confront it straight up and face on. Uh, When we look at this passage, what we find is that Jesus is providing us in verse 12 with yet another of the I am statements. In fact, there are two in the section that we read today. This one more obvious than the second. In this statement, Jesus is saying not only that I am the light of the world, but by claiming to be the light of the world, he is saying only by me can you see and understand everything else. Only by me can you see and understand this world. Apart from Jesus, this world is simply unknowable. The parts only make sense because it is Jesus that brings them together. Your life will only make sense as you submit to Jesus. Until the light of the world illuminates your world, the rest of it seems to be shadowed in darkness. The title, Light of the World, identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who fulfills God's promise to make the world right again. It is a favorite title, a favorite metaphor that John uses more than once. However, this title, Light of the World, does more than identify him as the Messiah, but also identifies him as God. Throughout the Old Testament, God is called light and reveals himself in his Shekinah glory of radiant existence. He illuminates, he invigorates, he awakens the hearts of his people to truth, goodness, faithfulness, and his sovereignty. With the claim to be God comes a unique authority that belongs only to Jesus. We see by understanding more specifically what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. He's not just claiming to be God. But notice that he's also commanding us to follow him. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. The only way of deliverance through the dark wilderness of this life and into the promised land of God's glory is through faith in Jesus Christ. Truly, he alone is the light of the world. Today I share with you this passage focusing not only on verse 12, but letting verse 12 be thematic to kind of lead us through the remainder. 
It is a different sort of passage than most of the narratives that we study. In it, what we are confronted with is a debate. So Jesus makes this bold statement at the conclusion of the festival of booths, and he does so in a public way that draws great attention to what he has said. Some of that attention is favorable, most of it is not. And it incites a debate that follows, an argument that continues. Those who are trying to discredit him, those who ultimately want to kill him, will use this as a way to try and show that he is false in his teaching in front of all of the people who are hearing this. This is not new. This has been going on for a while. But what we see with each encounter that John presents is an increase in the division that exists between the Jewish leadership and Jesus and those who follow him. It is in the midst of this debate that we find all of these things. The reason I say this passage is different than the way I normally present, I'm a linear thinker. I begin at point A, and then I go to point B and C and so forth. It's hard for me when I need to begin at point A and go to point F and then come back to point C and do B, and that's the way this falls. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole passage. And so from verse 13 through verse 30, we'll see the entire passage. Then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to present it rather than as the back and forth that you see in the, in the verses that we'll read. I'm going to present it from the perspective of the Pharisees, from the perspective of Jesus, and from the perspective of those who choose to believe in him. Beginning with verse 13, the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. 
But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying these thi- as he was saying these things, many believed in him. The first thing that I bring to the discussion is the misunderstanding of the Pharisees. You see it in the back and forth motion that takes place. They call his testimony false. They don't know where his father is or who his father is because they don't understand that he's from God. Uh, They finally, in exasperation, just simply blurt out, who are you? Uh, The whole concept seems to be missing them entirely. And so as we go along, they keep trying to either undermine him or redirect the conversation away from him. The Pharisees begin by declaring the testimony of Jesus is not true. The understanding of the leaders of the Jews is based on an earthly evaluation without any consideration for the truth of Jesus' deity, his incarnation, or his purpose for being here. Their misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of the Pharisees is something that is overwhelming. They see him through the lens of the material world based on their own understanding and authority. And that is how we miss so much of what God is doing. We are trying to see God, but through a lens that is tainted or colored or confined to a material existence, and he is always above and beyond that. The sight that he calls us to is one that that only comes as our lives are illuminated with the truth of the gospel and the word of God. The Pharisees are calling everything that he says false. He is not true in their minds. I believe personally, and this is an aside from what the passage is teaching us today, I believe personally that the defining reality for those who are followers of Christ as opposed to those who are not, even if they maybe give the appearance but are pretending, the defining quality and characteristic is always going to bring us back to the subject of truth. Truth is one of those things in our world today that people talk about this being true or that being true. And the thing that that disturbs me the most is when I hear someone talk about my truth as opposed to yours. If truth is something that is circumstantial or it's constantly changing or it's dependent on whatever group we happen to be associated with, then is it truth at all? Truth is not a subjective reality that you and I get to adjust according to whatever we choose or feel. Truth is an objective reality that is unchanging. And when we attempt to change it, it isn't true any longer. 
when they called the words of Jesus as being not true, false, what they were denying is the fundamental reality that is the basis for genuine conversion. And without faith in Jesus, knowing who he is, that he is sent from the Father, that he is one with the Father and the Spirit, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the glorification of Christ, all of these things are absolutely, utterly dependent on your believing the truth as far as their ability to change you. You say, well, what if I don't believe? Well, if you don't believe, it's still true. Jesus is still true. When Jesus speaks of the Father having sent him, they ask, where is your Father? Clearly, they do not believe that God is his Father. The reason is because they do not know God at all. If they knew him, they would know his Son. They have neither experienced him, nor do they know genuinely anything about him. Their lack of knowledge isn't due to ignorance. It's due to faithlessness. The only way to know God is through a submissive heart that embraces the reality of who he is, what he is doing now, and what he has already accomplished. Faithlessness leads to an ignorance and distance from the truth that separates us from God. So that when they ask regarding the Father, they are asking in an ignorance born out of faithlessness, showing that they neither know God nor do they know his Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I am going away and you will seek me, he was referring to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because they do not believe he is the Messiah, they will continue to look for another that fits their predefined expectations. There's only one Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. Imagine what it would be like to have that face-to-face confrontation with the true Messiah to deny that he is and then start to look for another Messiah. It is not unlike what people are doing today. Even if they are not looking for the Messiah, they are looking for someone that is going to satisfy the longing of the heart. But many times what people are wanting isn't a satisfaction that is going to bring transformation, but one that is going to confirm an already sinful estate. Jesus, when he said, I'm going away and you will seek me, he was referring to the fact that he would die. I think the Pharisees probably didn't care where he was going, just that he went away. Uh, They weren't really interested in anything other than just not having him there. Christianity finds itself in a world today that is becoming increasingly hostile to our existence, even more so to our testimony. It is an oppressive feeling to know that things that were commonly held are now being challenged in ways that most of us never believed possible. Not only are we seeing Christianity and the, the hold that we have on the truth as given to us through the Word of God being challenged in the public forum, 
We are now seeing other movements in which there are efforts to legislate against it or to limit. So far, most people, even those who do not uh, care for Christianity or its message, are willing to acknowledge that you still have the right to worship God and you still have the right to believe as you choose. But you need to do it in the confines of a service like this. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are agreeable to that and are happy to confine their faith merely to a worship service like this. And yet that was never what was intended. Faith has never been intended to be confined to a a location. It has always been intended to dwell richly in the lives of the believers so that it becomes a means by which the light of Christ and the truth is disseminated in the world. When Jesus said to go make disciples, he really said, as you go, make disciples. As you are in the world, wherever you happen to be, whomever you happen to be with, make disciples. How do we do that? Well, you can't do it if you don't share the message. We have clearly been taught (coughs) that the only way for the people to, to hear the word of God, which is the only means of transformation we've been given, is if someone proclaims it. And you say, well, you're proclaiming it. I am, but I'm proclaiming it to a group of people that purport to all be believers already. This isn't evangelism that I'm doing. This is discipleship. The proclamation of the word of God and the gathering of the people for worship is to be inspired with God's truth and to be inspired and encouraged by his spirit so that when we leave here, we are different than we arrived. And what we do out there is the primary means by which the world will come to know Jesus. If Christianity is confined to a place in a scheduled appointment, it isn't biblical Christianity at all. If the church is limited in her voice to only that which is sung and said on a Sunday morning service, then it is no longer the church. The church has always been Christ in her people, Christ in the people of the church, in the world, living light. Jesus said, let your light, after he said you're the light of the world, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father. The Pharisees didn't understand. Uh, The misunderstanding was born out of faithlessness and Jesus reminded them of these issues. He said that they do not see, they do not hear. The reason for their blindness is that they are of this world. Their connection to a pure material existence is so strong that even the Messiah must conform to their earthly boundaries, otherwise they rejected him. They wanted a religion that would serve them rather than call them to service for the glory of God. Finally, they ask, who are you? 
The fog of confusion and disbelief had left them dumbfounded and without an answer. Jesus says to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Do you like repeating yourself over and over and over? I don't. Say it. Don't spray it. And move on. You don't need to repeat it. I heard you the first time. If I didn't, you'll know that because I'll say, what? Repetition is for some frustration. I don't know how, I mean, Jesus is divine and his grace is unlimited. And it's the only way I can figure out that he put up with this. This debate keeps going round and round, this cycle and this circle. They keep asking the same questions over and over. He keeps telling them. He keeps showing them. He keeps teaching them. He keeps demonstrating himself. And yet they won't accept it. The problem isn't a lack of information. It isn't a lack of explanation. The problem is a lack of belief. The reason that they don't get it is because they don't believe. So they cry out, who are you? The missing element is belief. Without faith, it is impossible to know Christ. Without Christ, it is impossible to know God. And without faith in either one, you cannot truly know yourself. It is only as we understand who we are in the light of the truth of who Christ is that we truly know who we are. The Pharisees don't get it, and they're misunderstanding, and I use that word, um, realizing that it probably doesn't convey strongly enough what's really going on here. It's not as much a misunderstanding due to lack of information. It is a misunderstanding born out of intentional rebellion. The misunderstanding of the Pharisees, though, is not unexpected. The mission of Jesus is what we see secondly that gives clarity to this. Jesus has already declared that he's the light of the world, but in the debate that follows, he teaches that his testimony, calling himself this light, is not just from him, it's from God the Father. And so he's reminding us of the essential nature associated with the word that has been given. People that are converted and that experience salvation will do so because they have believed the word. That is the only way. The Bible reminds us over and over that it is the revelation of God to the world. But it is also the instruction by which we are redeemed. It is the applied word that comes through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit born out of faith in the finished work of the Son that we are brought into the family of God. All of this is essential to the salvation. And while it happens, maybe in a moment, this is how it happens. Jesus is telling us that his word is true and that he is from God. You either believe that or you do not. Jesus does not judge according to the flesh but rather judges by an eternal standard that governs all. When Jesus told the Pharisees that you judge by the flesh, you judge by the standards of the world, you judge by these things that are material, he then immediately said, I do not judge. I have heard that little piece of that passage quoted many times to to justify bad behavior. 
especially if that bad behavior is being called out or called into question. People will say, well, you're doing that on the basis of your faith and your morality that comes from your Christianity. But Jesus himself said, I do not judge. The misunderstanding that goes along with that is something that is hard to imagine. Later on, he certainly does say that he has much to judge. And we know that he certainly does, just by his very presence. What he means in that is, I do not judge the way you do. I don't judge by the flesh. I don't judge by the standards of this world. Jesus indeed does bring a judgment into this world, but not according to the flesh. His insight into the true need of man for a changed heart, leading to eternal life, is not of this world, but it is the means of deliverance from this world. So a world that is broken, a life that is sinful, can only be redeemed through faith in Jesus. He condemns the Pharisees for not knowing him or the Father, but he implies an offer that to know him is to know God. So even, there, even though there is no overt invitation in his response to the Pharisees, there is the implication that if you would believe in him, you are redeemed. And so when he says that rejecting him means you do not know the Father, but the flip side is equally true. Receiving him means that you know God. This invitation into an intimate relationship with God goes beyond mere religion. And it reinforces the idea and concept taught in Scripture that we are called into a divine relationship. Think about the elements of a relationship that are important to you. Excuse me. What are those elements? Relationship is, um, and you can think of various primary relationship, uh, relationships, friendship, uh, close friendship, and lifelong friendship. Those are the kinds of relationships that have depth and commitment, conviction. Uh, they have an intimacy associated with them. Uh, marriage relationship is a deep, abiding relationship. Uh, what would you say about that? Remember back in the in the old days, some of you, when we used to watch the dating game? <laughs> I'm glad to hear at least that volume of chuckle because that means I'm not alone in this. The dating game was where the questions would be asked. What was the purpose of the questions? And the candidate that you would go on the date with uh, would ask the questions and the men would be hidden behind the screens and they would answer. The whole point was that she would figure out which one was most compatible, which one she knew best. There was another game, though, that was on at the same time or during the same era uh, kind of sounds like you're describing prehistoric, you know, as the glaciers had receded, but the dinosaurs were still here when we were watching uh, the other game. What was the other one called? Huh? Newlyweds. Uh, so they would take newlyweds and they would take the women out and they'd ask the, they'd say, you know, write down the, the answers that you think to these questions that your wife would, would give. And then they bring the wives back out and the men never knew anything. Uh, 
Uh, it was like, you know, how could you be married to this person? You know this person. I mean, you don't know anything about this person. You know, it was because they were trying to get a handle on the reality that men are idiots. And they wanted to make a public declaration about that. Uh, what do we care about? Well, uh, sometimes it's not about those details and intricacies along the way. Uh, you know, guys, if you gave your wives chocolate-covered strawberries for Mother's Day or your anniversary and thought that was a wonderful thing but had forgotten that she's allergic to strawberries, then that's not really gaining anything for you. What was the whole point of it? The point was to see how well you know somebody. Now, I can't tell you that, you know, if you ask me a question about Kathy, that I could answer all of them correctly. Um, but I think I get most of them. Knowledge of someone is a relationship that, that brings to an awareness, an intimacy, a truthfulness, an association that is beyond just uh, a, a mere surface observance. It brings an awareness into the life that you truly know someone because you're experiencing that life with them. This is the relationship Jesus came to bring. If what you want is religion, you can get that everywhere. If what you want is a relationship, you can only have it through faith in Jesus Christ. The warning of eternal condemnation is not a threat. He said you will die in your sin. He uses the singular for sin because sin is the sin of unbelief, which was what was on display in this debate. <clears throat> but he repeats the warning in a couple of verses, and he uses the plural sins to show that unbelief will lead not only to a separation and an absence of redemption, but it will also lead to a sinful lifestyle and all of its darkness and its resulting degradation, ending with eternal death eternal separation from God. The second warning includes, however, another offer, another invitation. He uses the word unless. You'll die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. It is an encouragement to believe, but it is also showing us there's no middle ground. You're either in or you're out. You're either a person who has faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to die for our sins and rose for our justification, or you do not. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but through his sacrifice, he came to save it. And even in his condemnation of the Pharisees and the things that they have said thus far, he still holds out an offer of grace. <clears throat> the conclusion of this portion of the ongoing debate with the Jews brings a strong statement of what is to come. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. He is referring, of course, to the crucifixion when He is lifted up on the cross. The glory that is associated with the cross, but also with the resurrection beyond the cross, is all being referred to here. But before we move beyond that, Jesus said, you will know when he is lifted up. Here's what you will know. You will know that the cross is the defining moment for our faith. When you believe that Jesus died for your sins, 
when the cross becomes personal, when the power that held him there isn't for a group, but just for me, everything changes. It's in those moments that we find ourselves standing with the Roman centurion who upon the death of Jesus said, surely, surely, this man was the Son of God. It's in those defining moments where we see all of the various responses that take place of those whose minds and hearts are changed, not because of what he was subjected to, but because in the moment that he died, he did so for us. Jesus said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am who I say I am. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, the word of God always accomplishes its purpose. Whether they believe or not, the fact that his Messiahship, fact of his Messiahship is now a settled matter. In the final verses, we see that a very brief statement is given. Many believed. The third thing, the many who believed. The final verse tells us that many believed. It doesn't give us any additional information regarding the nature of their belief or the results of that as it continued forward. We do know that there were times when some claimed to believe, but yet their belief was false or based on the wrong thing, and they eventually left Jesus and no longer followed him. That is not stated here, and it doesn't say what happens beyond that, and so we accept it at face value, that if he wanted us to know more, he would have provided that. He intended that we know only that they believe, many believe. Here's the reality. When Jesus is presented as the true Son of God, that he has come from the Father in order to redeem us from our sins, to deliver us from hell and from death, and to do so in a way that will ultimately bring us into the right relationship with God for eternity as his children. When we proclaim that message, when we proclaim the gospel, many will believe. Why aren't people believing today? Because the gospel is not being proclaimed. Christianity is being confined. It is being limited. It is being lessened. Until the church is willing to rise to the challenge of sharing their faith beyond the walls of a building like this, until Christians are willing to stand for the truth of God's word in a way that distinguishes them from the rest of this world that is bound by the flesh, the results of those who believe will be minimal. The nature of true belief demands that those who follow Jesus are also making disciples. The testimony of Jesus is the Son of God sent from the Father to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification is still given. It isn't about the response. It is about the truth and obedience to make disciples. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, the word of God will accomplish its purpose and many will believe. The imagery here is fairly simple. 
If our world didn't have the sun, not only would we not know the sun, we wouldn't understand the world because we wouldn't be able to see it. Jesus is like the sun. We can't make sense of a world that has so much evil and so much good without Jesus to help us. Jesus helps us see it the way we should. He helps us understand it as only he can. In the light of Christ, we can embrace the reality that this world is broken by sin. And we are a part of it. But we can embrace that reality with hope. Because Jesus has come in order to fix it. To redeem us from our sin and one day to restore this world as it was intended to be. Our hope isn't a fool's dream. It's rooted in the reality of the resurrection as the standard by which we base that hope that we have been given the power of life over death. Jesus has already defeated sin and death. So we have confidence that one day he will banish it forever. Jesus is the light of the world. And only by following him do we truly see